Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Paid non-attorney spokesperson, Janelle and Associates Law Firm with Principal Office in Houston, Texas, is responsible for the content of this ad. Attention all active or retired military. If you are diagnosed with tinnitus or hearing loss after using yellow and black or yellow and olive dual-ended earplugs, you may be entitled to significant cash compensation. These earplugs permitted damaging sounds to enter the ear canal. If you served in the military and were later diagnosed with hearing loss or tinnitus, call 800-871-7344 right now to see if you qualify for significant cash compensation. The manufacturer knew of the defect but did not warn its customers. Complaints alleged that the manufacturer manipulated test results to make it appear that the plugs met government standards. If you deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan anytime from 2003 through 2015 and are now suffering from diagnosed hearing loss or tinnitus, you may be entitled to significant cash compensation. Call 800-871-7344 right now. Hurry, time is limited. Call 800-871-7344 now to see if you qualify for cash compensation. Call 800-871-7344. That's 800-871-7344. 800-871-7344. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your host, Chris Harrington, and I'm excited to be joining you here live Saturday night, February 20th, 2016, where we can talk about the most exciting subject on the planet, which, of course, is WWE financials. Uh, Joining me soon will be uh, my guest for the evening, Mr. Brandon Howard, also known as a decorative drop over on the Twitter account. Of course, he's a prolific writer over at Voices of Wrestling and kind of a, a growing star in the world of WrestleNomics. Uh, smart guy. Uh, looking forward to talking with him. Also, another upstate New York chum. So uh, bringing the power to what's been going on in the world of WrestleNomics Revolution, which, of course, uh, WrestleNomics Radio is always at the forefront of, even though we're only periodically here hanging out doing stuff but when we are we try to make it meaningful and of course this is a meaningful time of the year for us being that it is uh the annual report from wwe is out we have the q4 numbers we have kind of a perspective of what's going on uh about uh how things have been changing in the company this year of course a huge change from 2014 uh the uh Changes that have been going on in WWE, of course, really fascinating in terms of the WWE Network's kind of revolution over the last 
12 months here, changing from a negative OBITDA contributor to being, you know, such a huge revenue driver that WWE was able to mark over six, almost $650 million in the year of our Lord 2015, which is a remarkable number. Of course, we're going to get into a little bit more of the nitty gritty of that, as I did on my last show where I played some of the conference call audio. And uh, the conference call, the the show itself, all these sort of things were things that, of course, we covered when uh, I did the last show and uh, was able to play you some of that live audio, which was, I should mention, uh, recorded by Josh Nason over at figure4f4wonline.com, where I also was able to write a quick article. Uh, I appreciate uh, everyone sticking with us this week, as I, as usual, am trying to get all of my systems working. I think joining me on the line right now is Mr. Brandon Howard. Brandon, are you there? Chris, I'm here. Oh, wonderful to have you. I'm so sorry. I told you we were going to use Skype, and about two minutes before Skype, uh, the show started. I realized that was a disaster of a decision on my part because it was not letting me conference two people in at once. And I had no Skype credit left to uh, try to do a three-way <laughs> call. So I, I uh, tried to uh, fix things at the last moment here, and I appreciate you sticking with me. Uh, this is, of course, not even your first podcast ever, let alone your first podcast today. You were doing an earlier right. podcast today, weren't you? Yeah, I was talking to Alan Blackstock and Dylan Hales about the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, Candice, and Daniel Bryan, which should be dropping in the next day or two, I think. I'll, my goodness. I'll retweet that on my, my Twitter thing and at a decorative prop and check that out. Well, you know, it, it's the thing. It's it's exciting to have you on the show here. Of course, you are the writer of the year, uh, <laughs> as decided by SheetSandwich.com. And more importantly, you were Celia's pick for the most impactful homework, homework winner for the hair versus hair match involving Dump Masadio. I, I just butchered her name, but uh, I, I do think that's a, a relevant don't, and important don't thing. Matsumoto, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank don't you. See, yeah. What happens when you're a reader and not a talker? Uh, you know, you really burst onto the scene here. When do you think you really kind of started as a presence in wrestling analytics online? Oh, dear. Um, about, well, I really started, I think, like, and it kind of goes in a little bit of talk about business. I'm somebody who's never um, subscribed to cable in my adult life. Um, I had cable growing up, but so I never had cable. And then when the W Network came out, I I like I was like, wow, okay, I can, you know, I have a mobile device and I have a computer and stuff. I'll watch W Network, you know, without cable. I watch all these pay-per-views now without cable. So I got into it that way. And then about a year later, New Japan World came out, and I was like, well, I'll get into that too. And uh Around this time, so I, I also, like, because I was getting into the stuff again, I started to, to subscribe to the Observer again, which I'd done in the past, but had in several years. And, you know, and, and through that, I discovered the, the great work of, of the great Mookie, and uh, I learned a ton of stuff about dirty business, and uh, I've been ripping off ever since. <laughs> uh, it's hardly rip off. I think everybody is a clone of a clone of a clone of a clone, you know. Uh, we're all inspired by seeing other people do reporting on something that's interesting to us. So when I went back, I always tell the story. I In the early 2000s, there was a story that Dave Meltzer did where he broke down which people were moving the ratings the most in the quarter hour ratings. And so it was something really crazy, like X-Pac was the number one mover positively, which I thought was the most hilarious thing I'd read in ages. I just remember reading that article and thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to write articles that, you know, take data and look at it that way. And so that was kind of my my inspiration for me for a lot of the things that I started doing really early on. So I think we're all just kind of poking around. And, and I tell you, 
I look at these reports, I've looked at some of these annual reports 10, 15, 25 times. And every time I poke around in them, I find something new and interesting and different. And uh, in terms of what has changed from last time I held a podcast, of course, the annual report did come out. It came out actually the very next day. Um, the, the, the 10K, the, the, uh, I'm sorry, the, the quarterly report, uh, the 8K came out on a Thursday. And then the next day on Friday, the 10K came out. We still don't have the full, full annual report because that has the letter to shareholders, Vince McMahon, that usually comes out. Um, and it's more, been more than a week since then. But uh, I don't know. Did you have a chance to read over the annual report yet, Brandon? Um, I, I don't think so. Not probably not in the, in the detail that you did. I probably looked it over a bit. Um, well, and, and that's most not of, mo- mo- most of what I did was probably when I, when I, when I sat down and I, you you were on there, I uh, watching it too. And when the conference call happened on that Thursday, this, this past Thursday, no, no, a week ago Thursday. Um, so I, yeah, I, looked the, I looked at the. It's amazing how time course. flies when you're looking at this stuff and, you know, you put so much effort into kind of just that four hour period between 8 AM when they come, they release the data to the market. And then by about 11 AM when they actually have the conference call and then you're kind of reporting on it, you're writing about it and you're analyzing it and you're debating people online about it. And then of course, to start doing all the historical perspective to try to say, okay, if home entertainment is, you know, $25 million, is that good or bad? Is that up or down? And then you have to really dig into the numbers and try to do it all. And I know by the time it's all over, I'm exhausted. It's like, I don't want to even talk yeah. about it anymore. And so it's kind of nice to have a week here to digest it and take it in. So what were some of your kind of uh, feelings when you saw this whole, you know, 2015 play out? This is probably the first year you followed the financial cycle so closely and really got on these conference calls, read the reports, listened to, you know, how everything gets spun. What was kind of your takeaway from from this picture that they painted of 2015? I think the most interesting part, at least of the call, was where Vince McMahon, uh, the questions that were asked of him and his answers to those questions. So he sort of downplayed, you know, ratings are declining, and then that really good question, I think that was asked by Brad Sapwell about what's the tension between, you know, basically your YouTube videos that, you, that you've got that are... You, you, you know, you're you're touting how there's billions of YouTube videos, but then at the same time, your ratings are declining. But that's your that's where your biggest uh, revenue stream is from TV rights. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, I've listened to a lot of these calls, and Vince McMahon can be anywhere on them. Sometimes he's, you know, you wouldn't even know he was there. He just reads a prepared statement, and then Barrios answers all the questions. There was the famous time yeah. where he took the call and he was in Europe and the rest of the team was back in the U S and they all got disconnected and it was oh. just Vince by himself. And then oh, you hear Vince just be like, George, <laughs> George, damn it. And then just <laughs> silence. Uh, and you know, there's the domestic TV rights calls where, you know, Vince of course had famously the same analyst, uh, Brad Saffalo had promised that he could put him in a hammer lock if they did not double their rights at least, uh, which in the end they did not do domestically. Uh, so it's always I always find that Vince brings kind of the interesting uh, caliber to the the meeting. Whether or not you feel like he's bullshitting you, it's hard to say. But uh, it, it always feels a little bit less uh, slick than George Barrios's kind of either non-answers or whatever his buzzword of the week is. You know, for a while there we had our you of course I think were one of the were, weren't you the inventor of of Barrios Bingo? You coined the phrase, Chris. I, I just <laughs> I just I just brought it to life. <laughs> yeah, you you made the real board. And it's funny, if we go to that board, 
I swear he's tracking some of this and he knows that we've been making fun of him for stuff because he started to switch up his language right around the time we started the Barrios bingo. Uh, and then, you know, we stopped hearing about East Timor. We stopped hearing about the uh, whatever. Of course, you can probably guess what the center square for the Barrios bingo would be this time around. The ecosystem. Ecosystem, exactly, which I think was part of the, the title of your article, your most recent one you put over at Voices of Wrestling. Um, and I was wondering if maybe we could run down some of your the thoughts and the things that you wrote about in that, because what you did, and this is something that you've really excelled at in an area that I have barely touched, was breaking into the social media metrics that WWE loves to talk about, but then not only looking at what WWE's claims are, looking at what other companies are actually doing in that field, uh, you know, indie companies, TNA, Ring of Honor, Lucha Underground, but also trying to even tackle things like when Vince was talking about ratings. So can maybe you just run down some of your kind of key findings from that article you wrote? Awesome. I wrote most recently. Yeah, yeah. The ecosystem yeah. and talking about ratings. So, yeah, so, and if anybody wants to go read this, this is um, The Law of the Jungle. WB's maybe ecosystem, which is on voicesofwrestling.com. Uh, and I'll probably tweet that sometime tonight. Um, <clears throat> I think like one of the most, maybe kind of the more newsworthy thing that I found was that they're kind of being misleading with the, the YouTube views that they said that they got for the entire year 2015. Um, they put out this infograph that, that has, I'm looking at it right now, it says the number one sports channel on YouTube is WWE, and it's ahead of all these sports leagues. And then at the bottom of this, part of the infograph, it says 8 billion video views, FY15, which their physical year 15 is just the calendar year now. Um, but then if you go look at WWE's actual YouTube channel and you go click on the About tab, it will show you all the, the, the number of video views that that channel has had throughout its lifetime, uh, which their their channel goes back to May of 2007. Um, and it needs so there's a, there's the, the count for just the channel, and then there's the count for the network uh, that WWE has within because they have a number of WWE YouTube channels. But by far the vast majority of them come from the, the like the the flagship WWE uh, YouTube channel, which is like actually called WWE Fan Nation. Um, so, but anyway, the point is they got lifetime about seven and a half billion YouTube video video views. So not even eight billion on their channel lifetime. And, and certainly not 8 billion on their channel in the year 2015. Um, so what I did was like, all right, so how many how many videos did they really have in 2015? So what I did is I went to webarchive.org. I used the Wayback Machine to try to find uh, previous instances of their About page. And so I found, uh, I think not including the present one, I, I found 16 data points uh, via Web Archive. So I could kind of extrapolate on how many views they really got. And in my count, I think they got about, if you go to go to January and look over the line, it's all about, they had about, I think, two and a half million. And then uh, at the end of 2015, they're at about 6.25. So I think that's... And, and when we say it's 6.25 billion, correct? With a B? I'm sorry, billion. Billion. Yeah. And, and, and you remember, <laughs> remember uh, uh, Vince McMahon famously, on I think it was last quarter's conference call because uh, George Barris had referred to something as 500 million and he goes, well, the promoter in me likes to say half a billion, billion with a B. He's referring to like a social yeah. media touch point, yeah. But anyway, the yeah. point is that I, I, I estimate that they've got 3.75 billion YouTube views on their channel in 2015, not 8 billion. So that's less Which, than I mean, it's said. 
which is an incredible number in terms of billions of views. It's it's a huge number, but I think it's a great example of uh, one of the reasons I keep quoting this investing book from The Economist that I, I keep saying is really eye-opening to me is it basically says over and over and over again, don't take the company at its word every time it makes a claim that is not a gap measure. Don't believe it. Don't just uh, extract financials from from their annual report because the annual report is designed to mislead you and confuse you and only report on the things they want to report on. And that's something that I think is very WWE-esque. But, but it, it's the way it always is, right? That's the way every company yeah. tries to be. It's just that WWE has this slick, carny background. So sometimes it feels like it's doubly over in terms of this. And uh, certainly under the George Berrios regime, I don't remember the last CFO being nearly as bombastic as kind of Berrios has been in terms of his ambition for what the WWE is going to become, which I think speaks a lot to why Berrios is in the position he's in and why you don't hear from someone like Triple H on these calls, which I think would surprise a lot of people to know what a small role Triple H plays to the investor community versus to the wrestling community. Yeah, the impression I get is Paul Levesque is very much a talent and creative guy, which is his exact dollar's title, right? And, like, he doesn't get involved in the big picture stuff. I guess, like, looking at that impression was, uh, among other things, that he, I think he was on the, on the podcast with Steve Austin about a year ago. And, and something that was really, you know, business-like was asked about, and he was like, kind of said, well, well, yeah, I leave that to the finance guys. Like yeah. And and that was and, and you know, I think they he even talked a little bit about, you know, putting together the performance center that he was basically asked, Okay, well what's your ROI on this? What's your capital investment? What's your you know, what metrics are you using for this? And it was a real eye opening experience for him that he, you know, was kinda used to just thinking, Oh, well, you know, you open up a territory, you do stuff and then things happen, right? And it was kind of, you know, they were like, No, we want the business metrics on it. And I think that was really tough for him to kind of make that transition. Uh, talking about your yeah. you, YouTube views here, uh, just getting back to the story at hand because I'm so prone to, to kind of diversions and footnotes. Uh, something a discussion you and David Bixen's fan had seemed to center on the idea that perhaps WWE was in fact accumulating views that were not coming from their own controlled web uh, uh, YouTube pages. Correct? Yeah, like that. That's the only thing I could guess is that they. Um, well, I think that they're counting would be every WWE video on YouTube that they tagged as this is our content, which you know, they have every right to. But I think, I think what they're doing is they're counting all that in the total to get 8 billion, which would be like but then that would tell you that 8 billion and only 3.75 billion of it is their own. Well then more than half of the the WWE YouTube video, video views are from other channels. Maybe. I, I can't and and you then go on to, to kind of make a really interesting point, which is the WWE cable audience is graying immensely and has been graying for many, many years. I mean, and this is not even, this is supported by several different metrics. Internal WWE metrics have shown this. And if you go way back to the TNN days, I remember them talking about how Velocity's average viewer was like a 50-year-old man. And I kept thinking, <laughs> I watch Velocity, am I a 50-year-old man? And then I thought, you know, I sit around, I read 10Ks and get excited about finance call. So maybe I am on a Saturday night, I'm doing a podcast. So maybe I am an old maybe man already. <laughs> but yeah. uh, WWE's fan base essentially is aged with the Attitude Era. So if you took the average age in the Attitude Era and just kept walking them up for the last 15 years, they've been going up. Now, the only diversions to that have been things like Total Divas, which brought in a larger female presence. 
But then you flip it around and say, okay, and, ratings, and a younger ratings, audience as well. A younger, exactly, younger audience, a, a female audience, and so WWE's cable ratings uh, have started to really fall apart in the last, you know, let's say 16, 18 months here. Um, yet the age stays very old. And so that suggests, if anything, you're losing the younger generation from watching cable. And like yourself, those people in many ways are cord cutters that don't even have an, uh, an inkling of a, a cable subscription. Meanwhile, you have YouTube and you have Hulu. And maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the age statistics you were finding on that. And so I found um, it looks like most of the people who are using YouTube naturally are, are younger on the internet. The, the median average age of just a general Hulu. Uh, user or subscriber is 33. So it looks like, you know, these are younger people who are using these alternate means to watch WWE through the Internet through various uh, means. And then you've got, if you just look at the, the pie charts that I plucked out of their, the WWE's investor presentation, which was uh, offering, you know, what are our uh, age demographics? So you look at um, the one that I found that, that's labeled in fine print at the bottom of the pie chart. It says for the full year of 2012, the, the, the largest demographic in terms of age was you know, 35% for people of 50 years old or older. And then you go forward two years to 2014, and, and that 35% becomes 37% for people over 50. And then you go to the 12 months trailing September 2015, getting pretty close to the present, then that 37% has become 38%, again, for people over 50. Uh, so it looks like, well, maybe... Maybe that, and again, this is just the traditional TV audience. These are just the people who are watching. This is the data they're getting from Nielsen. So people are watching on regular TV. And and we've also we've seen it independently verified because Scarsborough did a uh, a survey for the Sporting News, and they looked at the average a UFC fan, a boxing fan, WWE fan, and it said the exact same thing. And so to me, it's it's triangulated pretty well in terms of. I know a lot of people love to scoff at Nielsen's ratings and they have such a small sample represent so many people. My counter to that is always, well, that's where the money goes and money talks, right? It's the best, worst thing we have, which is usually the solution to most problems and companies find. But I, I, I do think we do see that. I always think it's different when, you know, because you're going to be going to uh, the pay-per-view tomorrow. I know you went on to a number of house shows earlier this summer. Yeah. Um, and you yeah. could confess, it doesn't feel like you see 50-year-old people as the average age at these shows. No, absolutely not. Not on not on any of the shows, I would say. I, th- I think when you go to a, a house show, you see more women and kids. When you go to a, a TV taping like Raw, you see the women and kids and more uh, young adult males. But not on not on any of those show types do, do you see like a lot of people walking around who look like they're... You know, 50 years or, or older, which is very large. Uh, yeah, it's 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 that concept strange. of kind of that silent viewer of of that person who who will watch the product and and but they don't want to go and see it live necessarily. Um, and so yeah. it, it's interesting because you know you, one would think if NXT say had a television presence, would NXT you or the professional wrestling is it just that professional wrestling is an older man's uh interest still and it's going to take a lot of changes before that happens so it doesn't even matter if you throw pwg up there the people who are going to be watching that you know i don't know if i've seen any um have you seen any statistics about the demographics of the lucha underground audience yeah uh, well I, I know the there were the gender demographics were like for all over the place 95 percent one week and then like 75 percent another week for, for male audience. 
Um, I, I have seen average ages here and there, but I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, but I think at, at least one thing I, I, I take away from this is that there's that the the uh, old audience probably isn't so old. That 50 plus audience is probably not quite as big as it seems to be because there's probably more people. I mean, again, we don't know really how significant it is, but there's probably more people, especially young people, I think, especially kids who are just watching. YouTube videos here and there of, of WWE. Um, oh, and and really? network too. I'm sure you know is is playing a role in in giving it. I have at least three or four friends who primarily watch wrestling only through Hulu, and uh, it's funny because they actually watch more wrestling than I do a lot of the time. And they'll you know they'll come to me and, and talk about it, and I'll be like, "Where are you watching this?" And they'll just be like, "Oh, I just watch all the stuff on Hulu." And I think, "Wow, that's yeah. you know." It, to me, it's dedication, but I'm sure to some people, especially in this highly connected age, it's not that difficult, especially when you get your Roku box, which WWE Network convinced me to buy a Roku box, and, and it was a real life-changing decision for me. Um, yeah. And I think another so, way that this gets more comp- complicated is that, how I pointed out, uh, they, they don't really have 8 billion views on their channel. They've got, you know, this year, more like uh, a little less than 4 billion views on their channel in a year. So... So there's not so much of it on their channel, which means um, it's probably older content uh, being watched on YouTube. Now, still, they've got billions of views on their channel, which which has all the new content, which, by the way, we should point out that they're, uh, what's on, on the W YouTube channel these days, uh, as soon as like these segments end, you know, shortly after something happens on Raw, there's an edited version of it on YouTube uh, for just about every segment, and same for SmackDown. And I'm not sure what to do for the pay-per-views, but you can... You don't even have to have cable you, to kind of watch Raw uh, and see what's going on on the very same night. Um, sure, sure. And, I mean, it's the same way. I, I'll often keep up with, like, you know, what are the high spots from a New Japan show just by going to Twitter. And, you know, videos are posted so quickly that you can catch, you know, 15 high spots in a match and be able to kind of get the, the ebb and flow of what was happening. So, you know, to touch on the ratings element uh, where Vince basically made the claim and I'll paraphrase him though we played the quote last week and and I could even read the quote but essentially he said yeah we're down which he has to admit because there's absolutely no way you can spin these numbers and not say that you're down but everybody's down especially the networks we're on are down and you really get into that slicing and dicing of the question of what do you consider competition when you're saying you're down? Are you comparing yourself to live sports? Are you comparing yourself to scripted entertainment? Are you comparing yourself just to the network you're on? So what was some of the data that you found when you looked into that? So I, I took like, exactly what he said. He says, yeah, yeah, ours are down, but not as much as the networks that we're on. So I said, okay, let me see if I can find some information on how TV shows are doing on the USA network and on Fly uh, Fly for that matter. And, and what I found was that um, let's see if I can actually find it here. Um, that most of the shows for the USA Network, I think all of them except for the show Suits, the series Suits, all of them, all these shows which had a season, uh, the year or the season before, all, all these shows that were in their second or greater season, uh, they all declined. And I think Suits declined, but it was like only by it was by less than WWE Raw had declined. They suits declined by like 1.68 percent, and then but then all the other series on the USA Network had declined by double digits, whereas Raw declined depending on which metrics you look at anywhere between like seven and 12 percent. 
So essentially, and, and Vince was theory, saying uh, wrestling wrestling fared better than the the entertainment that USA was putting on there, uh, renewing for another season. So that's like Playing House and that Ambulance Sirens and and some of those other shows that they had. Yeah, and, uh, and sadly that, that would probably way. include uh, our favorite uh, Todd Chrisley show too. I guess it would. And I, I looked at all the uh, all the major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox, and all of their both scripted and non-scripted, this was the information that I found, both scripted and non-scripted series that had returned were all down by a decline greater than the decline of W. Raw. The same. I think non-scripted were stronger, but scripted were, were, were weaker. Um, so it, so it kind of looks like yeah, there's there's something to what he's saying that you know TV overall, TV in general is down, and and we're no further down than than anything else. But then you go on to look at like well, look at live sports. Um, Monday Night Football was only down two percent. Okay, Fall Raw is down seven percent. Uh, UFC was up like nine percent on FS1. I I just came across uh, an article from Awful Announcing tonight that said uh, NBA is up seven percent on both. ESPN and ABC in the first half of their season. So uh, live sports so what are, is, are still doing very well. What is your thought then? Say an analyst calls you up and says, all right, Brandon, WWE, Raw's down, SmackDown's down. Who should I be comparing them to? What is the benchmark you think that WWE should, should uh, if they were being truthful or if they're in their internal meetings looking at it, who should they be trying to beat in terms of a ratings change year over year? Like another TV show, TV show, like another program on TV. Yeah, what should what should they be pegging themselves against? Basically, it goes back to the question of: Are they fighting indie car racing, or are they fighting uh, the Full House, you know, reboot on Netflix, um, or are they fighting uh, uh, Walking Dead or football? I, I think it's really hard because like, pro wrestling is not really like anything else. This is something like, I think about like kind of a lot: is that pro wrestling is not sports. It's not. TV shows, I think this applies in a number of aspects when people try to make analogies to, to, to pro wrestling and to you know, how it's just like a movie, it's just like a TV show. And, and I don't think, I don't think that, uh, for a number of reasons, I don't think that analogy is perfect. And I don't think it's, obviously it's not legitimate sports in the sense that, that the outcomes are predetermined. Um, it, so it's really hard to make a comparison. If I were WWE, and, you know, they very well might be doing this. If I were them, I would want to look at... Um, TV ratings, the viewership from Nielsen, and then I would also be wanting to know, um, at, at least looking at their YouTube analytics, to say, well, how many people are watching from the U.S. and, and watching? So I would want those polls like across time to, to, to see if they fluctuate together or if one is offsetting the other, and, and things like that. I, I do think that there's probably an MMA comparison to be made in some cases with the Bellator and the UFC. Where yeah, that's close. Yeah. You, you could make an argument that they're promotion-driven um, programming, right? That it's about characters that are supposed to be dynamic enough to make you care. Because yeah. MMA big, has big shown match. to be like, yeah, has shown to be like wrestling in the sense that people aren't necessarily interested in good fights. They're interested in fights with characters that are very dynamic. And you know, nothing said more than that than the fact that the ratings are going to be <laughs> the best for the the Kimbo Dada. Uh, mm-hmm. Hoist Gracie Shamrock uh, fiasco that just went on. So yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> I, and at the same time, I think there is also you know that idea of saying, what if I could make a basket of regular season programming and say, okay, what is normal hockey does? What is normal 
basketball do? What does normal baseball do? And how does my programming during the kind of the normal season match up to them? Uh, I think with WWE, you always have that seasonality effect where there's always slightly more interest in Q1 bleeding into Q2, and there's always kind of a decrease of interest uh, during football season. So there, there is certainly um, that big argument of, are there really all these people that are just like, you know, oh, football's on, I'm going to watch football instead of wrestling, or are they losing them to other shows, be it Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, what it is? And I, I don't know if there's a good, clean answer to that. And I get WWE's kind of desire to always want to stand on the fence and, and go to whatever makes them look the best. But sometimes they end up making themselves look the worst, right? So if soccer can triple its fees with a tenth of the audience, they look really clunky and clumsy when they come out with, you know, a, a much bigger audience and can't seem to produce that same kind of uh, effect on their rights fees. So it's always like they're they're walking that very, very thin line in terms of who they want to go with. And I've had a lot of people even complain to me on Twitter about kind of the two-faced nature of it, where they feel like, you know, WWE just wants to compare itself to whoever uh, is down that week. And that just makes you sound like, you know, a complete opportunistic fool, not like you're even being that cunning because you're not fooling anyone. Yeah. And and like you said, we're talking about that economic security. I think they're, the way they present themselves are just they're just being sales and they just want you to, you know, invest in in the uh in the in their stocks. Um and, and I think when you're talking about how you know soccer got a has does soccer have a better deal or they they certainly have a vastly better deal per viewer, right? Yeah, per viewer. It was a it was they certainly do not make as much money as WWE is making, but it was just that they, they vastly improved their deal from a low base. And, of course, every time you're coming from a low base, it's much easier. But it also suggested that that sports bubble was still growing at the time. And then you really run into that question. And I know this is not, you know, necessarily a field that you're an expert on. But if you have any thoughts on, is the sports bubble bursting? Is is there a transformation going on? Um, from what I've seen, right, it looks like it, there might be, right? Like ESPN is, is suffering some hard times right now, right? Yeah, I mean, they had to really cut back. I was actually at the Canadian airport this week, and the guy behind me was talking about how he was a writer for, I think it's Undefeated, is that the new ESPN blog, uh, focusing on race and sports? And he was talking about the Grantland decision and about how many of his friends ended up getting, you know, axed in the whole Grantland thing, and, and how basically ESPN felt that their need to cut costs ended up with them kind of killing that branch of their own kind of sports, long-form journalism, whatever you want to call that, what it was. But uh, it's it's interesting just to see kind of the ramifications of when these media conglomerates have spent so much money, uh, when things aren't going right, uh, the heads that start to roll aren't always uh, the, thing, the first things that you're going to expect them to be. And I think we're going to continue. I think that's the, the key factor is to see, do we continue to see these other kind of slight cuts on the other side, or is it just going to become the next tennis rights or world cup rights or whatever it's going to be. English premier soccer is a good example with Fox really paying a lot for it. Um, are we going to see a big contraction one of these times here? Um, is UFC going to want to stay on Fox when their deal is up is a huge question mark because you know, what was at the time seen as like an enormous money guaranteed for Fox and for UFC now almost kind of seems like a paltry sum in this kind of new economic era. I guess it just depends on whether uh, 
traditional TV viewership continues to hold up and whether people really start to cut the cord in meaningful proportions, right? Yeah, and I, I do think that the size of kind of, um, you know, in Xfinity, which is also associated with NBC Universal, which then owns a whole basket of channels, it gives you this diversity in order for you to make these bidding opportunities that, say, somebody like an AMC who's, you know, kind of playing by themselves uh, might not be able to really go ahead and do. And I, I, I take that back. A&E is playing by themselves. I don't think AMC is playing by themselves. Um but just it, it's going to make a big difference down the line. And that's something I've said a lot about the, the streaming conglomerates too. You know, somebody was saying, asking me, you know, what, what do you, I think WWE network can, what can they do in terms of, you know, what if it fails? What if they, what if, what if it goes under Wouldn't WWE have to sell the company? And I said, no, they can just take on partners for the WWE network. They don't have to 100% own it. You know, the pay-per-view business was not 100% owned by the WWE. They had to split all that money with somebody. And there's definitely some streaming players out there that would pay big money to get the WWE Network on their uh, their roster. You know, you you know for a fact that ML, MLB would want it as the ability to bundle it with some other programming. We know that someone like an Amazon Prime who really wants to be a fighter with Netflix would love it. If Netflix ever wants to get into the streaming, you know, live sports rights era, that would be a very interesting kind of add-on to their subscription base. Uh, something they could certainly absorb. And, you know, those are just the big players. I'm not even talking about, you know, the upstarts that might want it. We already saw Yahoo kind of come and go in this space. But, you know, uh, seeing another mega tech conglomerate that might want to play with it, or even a Roku or someone, if they ever decided to stop just being a distributor and actually get into the semi-producer realm. Yeah. And another thing I was thinking about uh, – Especially coming off that Brad Suffolk question, where he asked about, you know, you've got all, the, all this YouTube viewership, but then you've got the uh, declining TV ratings, uh, and, and TV revenue is your biggest revenue source. Um, do you think, like, maybe they know that they're they're in a few contract that's going to expire? We think like 2018. Um, do you think that they're just like, you know, so so we're in this contract. Let's just, you know, we know the terms of it. So let's just go crazy with YouTube, and you, you know really play close to the line and just you know, put stuff on YouTube from raw, like right after it happens. And, in, um, and, and then maybe when the, the contract comes up in 2018, maybe we can use that as leverage and, and offer it to like NBCU and say, Hey, we'll limit the, uh, the, the content that we put on YouTube that goes on your network. If you give us a better deal. And, and one of the big findings I had in the annual report this year was the fact that their Hulu money is coming through in their TV deals. Which essentially proves that, yes, Hulu is part of these deals that WWE renegotiated here. But if you look at the money that Hulu is paying for WWE content, it is drastically less than what NBCU is paying. And, of course, that is largely because NBCU is a, is a major um, investor in Hulu. And so it was kind of bundled into the whole deal. And I think WWE, now having launched the network, you know, they got to in some ways hate it, you know, by the fact that their streaming rights to their content is not on their WWE network. It's either sitting on free YouTube or sitting on pay Hulu of which they are not really getting a kickback on except for, you know, their rights fee on Hulu. But I do see that as kind of that lever that they will have to push is that I really thought digital rights would become a big deal to WWE. And, and that was something they changed. I think this latest deal was what exactly was the blackout period between when episodes could go up on WWE network. 
which I think went down from like 90 days to 30 days or 45 days or something of that nature. So we, we have seen that kind of that narrow. But yeah, but I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a card in the, the, um, the back pocket of them to play is to basically say, look, we can prevent YouTube from being the area that people are going to to get this. We can sell these rights independently and really uh, leverage the hell out of them. And whether it's to Facebook, you know, for a Facebook video type thing where they're doing an ad share, of course, they're already doing ad share on YouTube. But when you look at their digital uh, media segment, which includes the advertising they're getting from YouTube, so essentially Hulu revenue goes to television, but YouTube revenue goes to digital media, digital media revenue is up. It's up a couple million, but we're still talking about less than a $10 million segment a quarter. And I think that really says the most about, you know, the value if I if you could as a digital streamer get all of WWE content for you know thirty forty million dollars a year you would jump at that opportunity that would be a great opportunity for you to have those exclusive rights and right now WWE is barely able to kind of leverage that segment and so I think it just says a lot about uh, WWE's that digital media plan like you say is I think they are in acquisition mode right now and essentially they use the television rights to subsidize other elements of the company. One of the biggest ones being WWE Network. That they want to grow the WWE Network. They want to get as many subscribers as they can. And right now, they don't care as much about monetizing people on the network as much as they do about just every quarter being able to advertise. We have more and more and more people. Which brings me to my question to you, Brandon, which is where are they going to be at the end of March? So March 31st, 2016. Of course, they ended this year right around 1.2 million subscribers they had an average number that was right around 1.2 million average subscribers so we know that we know last year coming out of q1 they were at 1.3 million subscribers and we know that the year before that they were at 495,000 which isn't a very useful mark because the service had barely been um, active at that point but we know they're at 1.3 million last year right around that time of wrestlemania where do you think they're going to end this year uh, for Q1, March 31st, 2016? For average subscribers? Well, let's go with the paid subscribers at the end of the quarter. And I, think that's, I think that's a really hard question because uh, WrestleMania is on April 3rd, right? So the question is, like, well, how far in advance are people going to subscribe to the network? These, these people yeah. are just going to subscribe, like, for, for Mania season. Um. I, I think it'll be up. I think the end number will be up from uh, 1.2 million that is at, uh, that it was at at the end of, end of this past year. Well, that's a maybe, fool there. Of course it is. Of course it's going to be higher. Yeah. So maybe 1.3. I would be surprised if it's like 1.4 because I think for Mania, when they announce that number the day after WrestleMania, I think they're going to be at about 1.5. Would be my guess. Interesting. I, I took a much more aggressive tack, which is unusual for me when it comes to WWE Network projections, because uh, uh, most of the time I've been pretty right a few times. I've been off a couple of times, but uh, I'm, I'm rarely way, way high. I'm, I'm often, you know, a little low, if anything. But I noticed that the difference between average paid subs and the ending quarter subs for Q1 of last year was about 400,000 difference. So you had a little over 927,000 paid over the quarter and you had 1.327 ending, which is almost a $400,000 differential. So if they told us already that they think they're going to end the quarter at, you know, somewhere around 1.25, 1.28 million subs 
then yeah. add 400,000 to that, that's 1.6. Now, I've had a lot of people say 1.6, you're out of your mind, Chris. That's way too high. So I'm sticking with it right now just because um, I, I do believe something that uh, Ken Hesser mentioned to me, which is a lot of people, I think, got gift cards. And I don't know if they necessarily activated their gift cards immediately as much as they thought about, you know, I want to wait till mania season is in act, is going, and that's when I'm going to start up my gift card. And so they didn't do much with it in, say, December, but closer to January, February, March time period, that's when we're going to start to see maybe upwards of fifty to 100,000 new subs just coming from the gift cards. On top of that, you have the 200,000 that are just people that are kind of coming in. You have the 100,000-plus that I think are just kind of natural evolution growth coming from, I don't care if it's international or just uh, for the first time, UK subscribers have to pay in January and they didn't really have to pay last year, January, whatever it is. I, I feel like maybe they could hit that 1.6 number. But, you know, I, I remember saying that on Brian Alvarez's show and he thought I was a crazy man. He was talking about <laughs> five is I, the key. You were thinking 1.5 is the key. And yeah. really, I, think I, I heard you say, say 1.7 on on, a, on and that was that was like yeah that was like (laughs) i was not expecting that question was not ready for that question and a number popped out of my mouth and then i looked at it and i thought not so crazy 1.65 is what i've reduced it to but uh uh, i i I just that's taking like that's taking like a raw number from last year though because i think like one of the things that's going on with the w network is it's it's you know it's marching towards a steady state which like by the way domestic subscribers uh, for, for Q4, the quarter that just passed, uh, finally went down in a like a, in a non-post-mania quarter, right? So like they went down in the quarter after Mania in 2015, but then they went back up for, for Q3, uh, and then they went back down again for Q4, where otherwise quarter after quarter, except for right after WrestleMania, domestic subscribers just have just continued to go up. Yeah, so I, yeah. I think and, like domestic subscribers have, are starting to steady off. I think international, because the international markets are, are behind in terms of when they were launched, I think the international subscribers will, they'll go, obviously they'll go up for, for Q1, getting towards WrestleMania. And I think they'll, they'll go up in Q2 because that's the quarter that Amania occurs in. But I think for Q3, that's the quarter that will end on September 30th of this year. You'll see those subscribers. Uh, for, I think you'll see those subscribers for even the international segment of the network subscribers go down. And then at then we might be at like a really a kind of a steady state. I think there'll still be people adopting here and there. Maybe over the, the long haul, we'll still accumulate people. But I think like the, the big quarter to quarter accumulation will have steadied. It's an interesting question because I remember I did some price analytics where I looked at, okay, when we would, uh, when pay-per-views cost this much, how many domestic buys would it get? Okay, they raised it by five bucks. How many buys did they get? And I looked at that and then I said, okay, let's drop it to 10 bucks. Let's see how many buys we're going to get. And what it basically predicted is that we would be around 1.3 million, 1.4 million people. And so it, it creates that idea that says, okay, of the pay-per-view old audience, yeah, that's that's exactly where it is. And at the same time, I think about attendance is basically flat, right? 6,000 a show yeah. for the last three, four, five years. Yeah. The WrestleMania attendance, pretty strong, though, right? They are expecting to get 70-plus thousand, 80,000, maybe more. It's hard to say exactly oh, I, how many people. I really, doubt, I really doubt they're going to get that, but we'll see. And that's my question is, yeah, I, if, it, to me, it's like if you can get 80,000 people to show up in a building once a year and you're going to tell me that you can only get 1.5 million of them to subscribe – 
that's weird to me sometimes that you can show this enormous ability to peak at certain points and yet not be able to get people to monetize. And I think a little bit of it now is they're in such a subscriber acquisition mode that we're going to see a couple more gimmicks before they give up is that we're going to see two months free or we're going to see, uh, uh, you know, uh, no credit card trials again and, and stuff like that, or just some other, or, or promotions, you know, we're going to see them actually advertising on television. We'll see them actually advertising in magazines. We'll see them sending flyers to people sending codes out, uh, uh, doing, you know, other kind of marketing that they're not doing yet, putting it in all the WWE shop stuff. Um, just because I think that they are determined to grow that number as high as they can until the TV rights stop giving them free money. And at that point, that's when they have to kind of pull back on the experiment and say, okay, the most people we can get to the service on a continuous basis is 1.7 million people. How do we make money on 1.7 million people? And what scares me about this service, and I'm, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this, what is left in the tank for WWE to grow with? Because they gave away WrestleMania right out of the bat. So it's not like you have that card you can play. And you're not going to make super WrestleMania. You can't make an event that's bigger than WrestleMania. And, and just the, the proliferation of pay-per-views has proven to us that usually what happens is you dilute your product instead of you improve it, right? So you can get a Royal Rumble, you can get a WrestleMania, and even SummerSlam in some years has been shown to be dilutive. It hasn't even been a big, big draw, and that was historically something that was. So it just kind of strikes me as like, what is it for WWE to play as a card that can entice people to really want to get this wrestling station? Do you have any ideas or thoughts on that? Well, as Vince McMahon said, and the one question he was asked, he has to be creative. And, but, but really, he has to create stars. And I think WWE has shown that they have a lot of problems with creating stars in, in recent years. Uh, they, like you said, they can't make something bigger than WrestleMania. They, can't, they can only gimmick the network itself to a certain extent. Um, and, and, and another thing I want to mention about the, the gift cards, and, um, Dave Meltzer wrote a big piece in the Observer of past Wednesday coming out of the financial report. And uh, he seemed to be su- suggesting, I don't know if this is based on information that he knows, in addition to uh, the financial reports, or this is something he uh, took, took away from it, was that uh, you know they got these gift cards at, at Walmart or, or wherever because they, the idea is that, well, maybe wrestling fans don't actually have a credit card because they have both or whatever. And he said, um, in addition to gift cards made for community Christmas presents to fans and then... And, uh, it would go after the lower economic fan base, and it neither happened, and that theory turned out to be completely incorrect. So again, I don't, I don't know if Dave is saying that because I think it's, it was something I, I else or, think or it, what. I think it's premature, though. I really do because the gift cards did not even start until middle of Q4. You remember they announced it in the Q3 earnings, which was October, is when we we had the um, uh, the the actual press release, if I recall correctly. I think it was October 29th, if my memory serves me right. So basically, you had November, December. And at that time, it was only available at Walmart and on the website. And a lot of those are going to be given for gifts, right? And what, when are they going to be given out? They're going to be given out at Christmas. So you, you might get a small amount of redemptions coming in the last six days of, the, of December. I think it was a huge miss by the analysts for no one to grill them on this question. I think the two biggest myths coming out of these calls has been, number one, why no one asks about this Thailand law- lawsuit where basically one of their television partners is not paying their bills 
and owes WWE a cumulative $23 million. And so when you're talking about your guaranteed television rights, you always say subject to counterparty risk. This is what counterparty risk is. What happens when your partner just decides not to pay? And number two is, why did no one ask about gift card subscriptions? And it's not that I think it's the be-all, end-all. I think there's other things like virtual reality that are even more pipe dreams uh, for, for analysts to get caught up on that aren't going to really pan out to be the next big thing. But uh, I do think that there was an opportunity for someone just to, to poke, poke the bear a little bit about it. You know, instead of grilling them on, can you give us what the NXT revenue stream looks like, which is, is one of the analysts' favorite talking points, which goes nowhere every month. Uh, was to find out more about these gift cards. But uh, there is an argument to be made. Maybe it's all huff and puff. And the idea is people that want this thing are going to get it. People that don't really care that much don't really care that much. And that's just how it is. I, in your experience, do you know people who have just given up on the WWE Network? I do. I know when it started, I, I was asking a lot of people, like, do you still subscribe? Like, asking and that's the rest of me. And a lot of them didn't. I think, I think a lot of, like... A lot of people I know who are wrestling fans like didn't. A lot of them didn't even adopt it uh, early on in the first place. Um, I, have, I have a couple of friends who come over for the, for the pay-per-views uh, uh, to my place every now and then, and like, and I had one like he wanted to, uh, to see WrestleMania, and, and I was like, why don't you just it's nine ninety nine, just go go sign up, and like he ended up like looking, you know, finding it on like an illegal stream or something like that. Really, like, ruining, ruining his computer. I'm like it's just nine ninety nine, but but anyway. Um, yeah, but with the gift cards, my question, I don't know if you know the answer to this. That, so the um, they're getting that money at the time that that card is purchased and accounting for it at the time of the purchase, right? You know, I looked not, at... We just I don't looked, see the subscriber until the... Yeah, I looked into used. that, and essentially it appears that what they're doing is they're... Um, amortize, they're not amortizing. They're, they're, uh, they're delaying taking that revenue until the subscription appears to be used is what I, I essentially read when I looked in the annual report is that well, what it's, it's the same used? way. Well, that's what I wonder. And so it, it gets to this question of basically how much revenue do you carry and gift card accounting just from a financial standpoint, from what I've read is a pain in the neck, which is why originally <laughs> gift cards had expiration dates, right? Because people wanted to account yeah. for the revenue and they wanted to then be able to say, when can I write off this debt? Or not debt. Well, it's sort of a debt, right? Because it's a service you owe that yeah. has been paid for. Um, and what happened is is consumer protection boards, like in Minnesota here, it is illegal for a gift card to expire. So you run into this question of when can I take wow. the revenue? Now, the reality is if it was $20 million, WWE would care. It's not $20 million. You know, it's, it's you know, even if it's, say, 100,000 people and it was $10, well, I guess it would be $30, right? So it'd be $3 million bucks. Three million bucks, not a not a chump change, but at the same time, three million bucks. If you look at how much they spend on venue merchandise and how much they sell of venue merchandise, and people don't, you know, get all up in arms about that, three million bucks is just a drop in the bucket for what WWE is pushing around. When they do something like take that media center seven million dollar hit, essentially for the last several years, they've knew that they owed seven million dollars, and they just haven't really been able to put it on the balance sheet. Because they were able to basically say, well, we're not taking these plans into account yet, so we don't have to put it on our sheet. And that's just the way financial accounting works, is that um, all the television products, for instance, that they make, all the, all the feature films, they produce this stuff and they put it in this kind of weird holding area on their balance sheet and say, we're not going to take it as a financial hit until we air it. 
So the same stuff with uh, Edge and Christian's new show. That was filmed. They had to pay for making that show, but they don't take the cost of it until they actually air the show on the network. So it's this weird series of accounting for them. And so in some ways, I don't think we have a view because I think it would show up on their financial sheet. And basically they said, we're going to hold off on booking that revenue until we, we think it's the right time. And what I assume what would happen is that if they amount that's a significantly percentage amount, either you consider that a, a balance that is just rolling forward at all times and you always assume, okay, up to 10% is never going to get redeemed. Or at some point you just say, we're going we're gonna to book that revenue now. Um, and do, it do, these cards have, do these cards have expiration dates on them? And do, do we know that, or do I need to go to like my local Walmart and take a look? <laughs> my short answer is I have no idea. My guess is no, yeah. they don't have expiration dates. But it raises the question of, okay, well, WWE just sold something that said it's nine ninety nine, right? When can you change the price of the network? Well, well, you just sold me ah, some right. gift cards. Said that they're they're good for such and such, and they have offered promotions in the past where you know that nine ninety nine is is prorated in some way, like where they've bundled it with something well, else. And originally they had could, the. I suppose you could have the card. You could have the card though, right? And then and then it's just say it's they the raise the, the yeah yeah yeah. So say they raise and the price, just, you still get to log in because it was paper at the time that it was nine ninety nine. And to be honest, if you know they ever go ahead and say, "Hey, we're going to um, you know raise the ra- raise the price of of the WWE Network," and if they're not grandfathering people in, first thing I'd tell you to do is go out and buy a bunch of gift cards then, because I bet you they'll they'll still be good for uh, the next. But uh, you know, they could also be like Xbox points, where you end up with that question of, "Okay, you're not buying the dollar service; you're buying points, and these points then, if we change the value of them over time, it changes." But Wait, this is it, a great investment idea. I should I should go out and like buy I don't know, um, you know, uh, maybe radio just buy, buy like a hundred W network yeah. cards. Well, and then you know, years if, from now, if, when the W network subscription rate is increased, I'll save a bunch of money. Yeah, if if we couldn't right now stream twenty of us from the same account, I'm sure it would be a good investment. But uh, until they fix that flaw seriously, I oh, think yeah. we're we're in a conundrum in itself. Um. We have. I've been talking on the line here with Brandon Howard. He's on Twitter, of course, at a decorative drop. He's a writer for Voices of Wrestling. He, of course, was Sheet Sandwiches Writer of the Year, beating out. And I just want to. I just want to call this out one more time here because you beat out some pretty hefty competition. You beat out Mr. Wade Keller. You beat out Mr. Bruce Mitchell. You beat out Mr. David Bixenspan. You beat out a guy who has several things to his name on this, Mr. Chris Harrington who writes for both yeah. Indeed Wrestling, WrestleNomics, and Voices of Wrestling, apparently. And with that, you guy. won, uh, which is, was quite a, a maneuver this year, and congratulations on that. If you're interested in talking with us online here, you can, of course, call in as we continue our conversation. The number, in case you don't see it on your screen right now and somehow you have a piece of paper or a, a, something you're going to write it down, it's 646-668-2171. That's to Mookie Ghana, Chris Harrington, and Mr. Brandon Howard. Um, let's just talk about some of the other things I saw going on in the annual report this year uh, that I thought were interesting. Of course, uh, first thing I called out is my favorite phrase where they explain what the creative team does, where they always, and it's the same phrase they use every year. This isn't new or different, but they always say they, they develop compelling and complex characters and weave them into dynamic storylines that combine physical and emotional elements. So if you've ever wondered to yourself, yeah, what do they do all day? That's what it is. You know what? We actually have a caller on the line. Uh, I hope we're prepared here to take them on. Caller, 
You are on the line with Brandon Howard and Chris Harrington. Who's this? Where are you calling from? Um, it's Keith Harris from Sheffield in England. Hey, Keith. My, hey, Keith. Uh, calling us all the way across the pond. This has got to be pretty late for you, so uh, I appreciate you making the time. Well, it's a uh, fast lane tomorrow, so um, sort of preparing for that by staying up a bit late tonight. Tremendous. What is on your mind? What were you thinking about when you were seeing all these WWE numbers coming in here? And what is your thoughts for what they can really do to grow in 2016? Um, I, 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 I just, I'm not sure where the growth comes from. I think they'll have a very safe year. Um, I think they'll, they'll do maybe in terms of profit, they may do a little better than they did this year because you know, uh, they were hurt by that $7 billion impairment charge, which, you know, uh, they shouldn't have next year. Um, well, just, there's always another one, right? One year it's tout. One year they, they've invested in that Marvel touring company. Uh, every year they got something on the books there. So I honestly think it's a miracle we haven't had another WWE future film impairment of 20 plus million like they took about three years ago. Well, I think I think they've become smarter in how how much money they spend and how they spend their money on the film division. So it's sort of very, it's more low risk, low reward, as far as it can be in the film industry, which is notoriously, you know, can be very um, risky. What and your thought? Do you, should they stay in this high risk, low reward area? I mean, I, I know they've taken a loan, so they have their access to capital, that they've stopped producing these, you know, uh, uh, the Condemned-esque movies that were so expensive that, you know, we're at risk of just ruining the company. But do you think it's it makes sense for them to stay in this realm or not? Well, I think they like – they don't just want to be known as a wrestling company. So maintaining some foothold in in movies – gives them that bragging right. So they're not just a wrestling company there. They're a you know, sort of a multimedia company. You know, um so I think from that I, I think there's some benefit to that. Maybe not as beneficial as the returns maybe, but I, know, I there, agree with you hundred percent that it's it's completely that. To call yourself an entertainment company and not just a wrestling company, you have to have these arms that do things outside of wrestling, and that the film division is the perfect example of that. The counter to that, of course, is when you make your characters, you put them in crappy films, who benefits? Well, I think that, that there may be a little benefit to the wrestlers in the sense it doesn't make them bigger stars, but it does give them acting experience on their CV. So that's something that, you know, maybe they can parlay um, after their WWE career is over. So, yeah, one, I think on the Talking Sheet roundtable this week, one of the, you know, the speculation on Wade Barrett leaving WWE is that he may try and go into acting further. And he has been in a WWE film recently. And and you bring up a great point there. I, I remember talking uh, uh, and hearing a little bit about D- Dean Ambrose when he was away, and somebody asked him, you know, you know, what, what, how was that? And he's like, it was the easiest time of my life. 
compared to what I have to do for <laughs> wrestling. You know, they gave me lines. I memorized lines. I went out there and I fake fought with people and we did them in one take, you know, and they were all astonished that, you know, he could do these choreography things so quickly. And he's like, no, this is my job. And he's like, that's three months of my life because I got paid, you know, I got fed, I got paid. I didn't, you know, have to travel anywhere. It was wonderful. And so I, I do think in some ways, some of these guys actually see it as a gift more than they see it as a, you know, uh, a career killer is they must love it because it's, it's definitely a diversion from the wrestling industry. And if if they're treated like an actor rather than a wrestler, then they will would have certain expenses paid for that they wouldn't get on the road. So, you know, there may be that element to it as well. I don't don't know how it works, but I I imagine they can't treat the uh, other actors in the film better than the wrestler. <laughs> I'm sure as a, a independent contractor, uh, some of these actors are, yeah, a little surprised at how much the WWE is given away in their their world, uh, with their 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 talent. But as we're talking here about 2016, I think international is huge, right? They, that's what WWE's yeah. narrative is: is that international, international, international. And even though I, I'm always like, what more can they do in the UK? What more can they do in the UK this year? NXT tour, uh, you know, still managing to push the envelope. What are your thoughts as a UK citizen? Um, not, I didn't say an EU citizen because I know that might change in the future here. But as a UK citizen, what are your thoughts of what they can do yeah. to continue to expand? Um, I, 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 you know, I think maybe they could do two NXT tours a year in the UK. I think maybe I think there's probably enough popularity for the brand that you know. You, you could do two NXT tours and two WWE tours. And, you know, so that may be the easiest way to grow in the UK is to exploit the popularity of the NXT brand and run every six months over here. Does Go it make any sense to run a pay-per-view? Um, oh, I, I think with the WWE network as it is now, I think, you know, that, that is something that, you know, you know, they should definitely think about running a major pay-per-view um, here. I don't think they'd ever do WrestleMania, uh, but a SummerSlam perhaps could be really big. You know? Yeah. And we are very shortly getting, uh, getting to the 25th anniversary of SummerSlam 92, so that, that might be the perfect time to do it, is to do... To, to come back to the UK if there's the right stadium uh, that they could find to uh, run. Um, you know, because of the, they could really push the history of the event as well and make it. And, and I think a the Beast from the East. Yeah, the Beast from the East special really was eye opening in that element of saying, you know, it was super popular, it was well reviewed, it was enjoyed. And I, I do think that's the element that the WWE Network brings is that immediacy um, of these international things. And I, I think from a branding standpoint, it's got to be a real pay-per-view. I don't think it works just to kind of throw somebody at WWE. You know, you guys getting bragging rights doesn't mean anything. It has to be something that is going to fill an arena and, and make it a big deal. Because, you know, TNA proved that, you know, they can go over there and they can draw a little bit. But WWE, if they want to make it a, a worthwhile endeavor, they really need to go over there and invest heavily. Now, the one challenge, of course, is once you go on these international tours, 
the WWE contractors are treated very differently than they are normally as they are in the in North America. You know that all the transportation's paid for, all the hotels are paid for. Yeah. WWE takes over all that. So it's it's funny that their model when they go overseas almost switched to what I would consider a traditional employer employee relationship. Yeah, that's 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 real quick. because I just about SummerSlam real quick. They're going to do it in Brooklyn for 2016 as well, 2017. You might be right about that. You're you're right on that. That that I think that the Brooklyn thing is probably set. But I I do agree. Even hey hell Survivor Series, um, is better than nothing, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think yeah, um, Survivor Series. Yeah, I think. The problem is, is that it's not traditionally one of the big three events. So, you know, um, maybe you couldn't run a stadium with that that a Survivor Series show, but I think you definitely could run, say, a large arena in Manchester or London. So, you have about fifteen thousand seat capacity or something like that, and charge higher ticket prices because it is the first time. You know, that there would have been a WWE pay-per-view in um, Europe for you know a proper pay-per-view, not 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 one of these uh, UK-only pay-per-views. Yeah, you know, for, for about, over two decades. What about TLC? I wonder if if you know at least. I always feel like Royal Rumble. One of the reasons it matters is because of the stipulation. You know, you feel like there's some weight to who wins, and TLC is about the only other one out there that seems to ever have that kind of, I don't know, importance well, to it. Money, where, money in the bank, maybe. Money in the bank. Yeah, money in the bank. Sorry, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, um, uh, any other other thoughts of kind of expansion opportunities for WWE? Uh, you know, clearly they're not going to change the WWE network price in the next year. Clear, they're not going to peel off anything. Uh, you know, I think we're going to see a lot of the same as it was uh, network specials, quarterly network specials from NXT, uh, quarterly uh, localized specials. You know, from WWE, where Beast from the East, or you know, the, the MSG show, or the Toronto show that's coming up, things like that. Um, programming, things like that. Uh, video game, you know, they're going to get a bunch of video game royalties like they always do. Uh, they're going to continue to kind of get a little bit more money from the Supercard thing. Is there some revenue stream or idea that they haven't really tapped into yet that you think has an opportunity? Well, obviously, digital media is um, the great hope, isn't it, I think? Because, you know, they've shown, demonstrated success in that field in terms of getting... Uh, YouTube viewers and and things like that. Can they turn that into more dollars? And that that you know that sh- should be an area of some growth. Uh, I just worry that you know how these platforms are set up. Um, you know Facebook, YouTube, etc. They're free services. So you know um, all the money comes from advertising. So you know, even even if you're generating, you know, um, sort of eight billion views, and that number, you know, that number can be, uh, you know, quibbled, but you know, but anyway, um, yeah, it's like Viagra spam, right? It's just the argument that I spammed a billion people doesn't mean that I'm going to make a million dollars. It's because you have to have 
some percentage of people that actually are going to invest in whatever it is you're selling. And it, it, there's that big question mark of kind of is is this age of consumers, are they like, like Brandon described there, people that are going to go find illegal streams rather than just plop down the $10 for the, the service? I know as I got older, I was a lot more willing to spend my own cash on services and goods and things that I wanted where in the past I would, you know, really nickel and dime everything and really think about it a lot. And I think as you become a more affluent consumer, that always changes. But I wonder is, is the media consumption habits of the younger generation changed in such a way that it's going to be harder and harder to market and advertise to them in a meaningful way. Um, I, 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 yeah, I think we're in uncharted territory and yeah, I, 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 I personally don't think the change will be as fast as some people. You know, I, you know, for example, like Les Moore of Talking Sheet, I highly respect him. But I, I think, you know, the change won't happen overnight. I think, you know, I think WWE will, will have maybe one more opportunity to get maybe depend on their TV rights. I think they'll probably... You know, be able to get a raise from the USA Network the next time around, and but in five years' time, that that may be, you know, you know maybe then, you know, the the industry will be very different. I think, you know, I think short term they can still rely on the the, the TV rights from uh, USA because USA is struggling with their other programming. Yeah, exactly. Longer yeah. term. I, I, I think you're, I think you're right on that. I, I agree that I don't think the revolution is. I think the revolution will be televised on cable television. I think. <laughs> I think uh, you know people are because you know it's. I've I've told the story before. I go back. I read these old broadcasting and cable articles from ninety one, ninety two, and it's a time people are predicting the death of cable, and so it's just like it's been a slow moving boat for many many years. Okay. Uh, I, I think one thing that's true about media in general is that a lot of times we look for like, oh, this new media is going to replace this old media. And what really happens is, well, it just, it, it, maybe it sort of reduces the usefulness or the popularity of, of the old media. The old media still sticks around. Like we, um, we still have, use, we still make telephone calls. We still have like newspapers. Paper mail. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we still have paper mail, even though there's email on uh, stuff like that. But I think another thing that, that's true is that um, I think the younger generation, which I consider myself part, are are more used to avoiding advertising and not not really paying for things. In addition to that, like we have ad block on our on our web browsers. I do at least. Um, we're used to like you know fast forwarding to the commercials with DVR. Exactly, I think it, it's harder. We're, we're used to, to ra- rather than to monetize you as an advertise. Yeah, we're used to rather than sign up for the W Network or paying. $54 for, for a pay-per-view where you're still maybe finding a, a, some nefarious means with which to watch it. So, uh, Keith, again, from a UK perspective, one thing that really interests me, and this really relates to China more than anything, but I'm curious about the idea of why people care about wrestling when it's not your own culture's wrestling. Because, yes, there are Americans that really think that British wrestling is cool, but the majority of American wrestling fans are not interested in their non-cultures background, especially, you know, wrestling from the seventies, the eighties, that's not going to relate to them. And so the WWE network, of course, WWE F has a long history with 
the UK. So there's some there. And that's one of the reasons I think that the UK does well, also being an English speaking country, being affluent, all those elements there. What is it you think that, you know, people that watch WWE, what about it is it that they're connecting to? Are they only interested in the current product? Are they interested in the historical product? Do they care about Mid-South being on or not being on? What are your thoughts? In, in the UK, um, I, I, I would say our hardcore fans are pretty similar to the, to the hardcore fans in America. You know, if you look at the independent promotions, you know, uh, some of them are successful. Revolution Pro Wrestling you know, is a promotion that could be transplanted the product into um, um, America and it would be received well because it's similar to the, you know, it's sort of like Britain's um, Ring of Honor, sort of that, or or maybe maybe more Ring of Honor from, you know, their peak. So, um, so I, I, you know, there are some promotions that have their a bit more of their own maybe British flavour, so particularly insane championship wrestling, but it's still it's very heavily inspired from ECW, um, you know, ECW Attitude Era, you know, because they're more of a storyline based promotion, more brawling, you know, so it's very reminiscent of a Scottish um, ECW. So I think, you know, I think, you know, what 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 the hardcore fans in the UK are looking for matches up quite well for what the um, American viewers want to see. But what I'm trying to get at is they keep you know holding China out as this this golden ticket. You know, same with India, billions of people. Yes. Yeah. Well, why do these billions yeah. of people care about a WWE product? that has not been airing in their country for very long, does not have very many people that look like them and stars that they connect to. And if they, you know, if they went back and looked in the archives, I don't think Tiger Chung Lee is going to fare very well uh, when the Chinese media is watching it. Uh, so I, I just wonder, like, what is the connection these people have? I think the UK at least can say, yeah, we were watching back in the early 90s, so I care a little bit about this product, but I'm just wondering: do do fans feel that way or not that way? Maybe I'm maybe I'm generalizing. I think I think it depends on the market, and I think China will be a very very tough nut for uh, WWE to crack, partly due to doing business there for a Western uh, company is very difficult, you know. Um, and, and I think the other the other issue with China is that it's not a um, not a country that has has a history of wrestling. So mm-hmm. I think there would be some success. I think yeah, you, you could have some success based on these are the American stars coming to let's say Beijing, and you may draw curiosity interest for a life some live events in China but whether that would translate to um, you know a lot of WWE network buys I don't think so in the short term so it's a market they would really need to grow you know, that it, you know, it, you know China isn't going to give them lots of money overnight it's something that maybe if you keep working on the market and growing your popularity there in 10, 20 years' time, 
it could be um, a big thing for the company. But, but also you've got to remember that China, even though China is very populous, um, a lot of the people living in China are very poor. And that, that's slowly changing as well. But, you know, you think of it's a marketplace with one billion people. You, you may, you know, the people who, you know, who, who have the broadband access to and the money to, um, you know, pay for the network is obviously going to be a minority of that and, large number. And speak English and want a streaming yeah. service. Is WWE yeah, on yeah. TV in China in any capacity? I've asked that question, and I, I don't know if I've ever gotten a straight answer. Um, I believe what they said, and this was from last quarter's conference call, is essentially they use a a, a various local broadcasting hubs to get that out, and they wanted to reevaluate that strategy and see if maybe they should go to kind of you know, major media distributors and somehow redistribute it. But I'm not even a hundred percent sure because, you know, it's like when you hear about those, um, those, those, uh, live stream gaming accounts in South Korea and, you know, they tell you this many people are watching Starcraft two being played. And then you go ask somebody, you know, who, who lives in South Korea and they'll be like, no, that's not popular. And here's like, I, I hear two different stories coming out of the same thing. And so it's like the percentage of people that speak English that you can get to to talk about some of these things sometimes are really it, – it's confusing and it's, it's questionable. And, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that Shane McMahon was involved in this money-losing company that redistributes American entertainment to Chinese companies, you know, I, I do think that the entire idea would be a pipe dream. I do think you look at the Indian example, you see them hiring Indian stars – um, to work in NXT, the fact we haven't seen that going on with Chinese stars in a in a large scale effort, unless they're going to do a Chinese tough enough, uh, maybe that's what Build a Mod's next project is going to be. Uh, but it's it seems like we're still far away from that marketplace being the golden ticket to this massive revenue growth. Uh, I think it's just something that's fun to to throw out to the lower Martins of the world to kind of say maybe next year we'll hit this. Um, but I, International, I think, is a yeah, key area I think area from my own experience of traveling to China, so um, I, I, I've been over there to teach for a couple of weeks the last two years. Uh, the, the broadband connection there isn't that great. So, um, I mean, there's always the chance that they would go so, a television distribution method like Canada and uh, the Middle East it's and the really Philippines. good enough for me where I was staying to um, use the WWE network reliably, I, I wouldn't think. And that's, that's I, I, I would think that, like, um, and I would think that when it comes to the international market, they're the most popular markets outside of the U.S., almost certainly Canada and the U.K. And I think that's the case because they had TV in those markets. Either you can correct me if I'm wrong, they had TV in those markets for a very long time. I'm not mentioning the fact that they speak English. Most people speak English in, in all three of those countries. Yeah. If you look at their biggest yeah. misses, in my mind, it's Brazil and France. If you want to go to countries that have enormous populations, have relatively good broadband access for their population size, and are way under-indexed for WWE. Uh, uh, I know when they, they released an infographic about a year ago on the first birthday, and they said, here's our top ten markets. And I think one of the top 10 markets was Chile. 
And I, I mentioned this on Twitter, and I got a whole bunch of Chilean fans who were like, yeah, we love WWE. It's huge here. And so I do think that there's regional things where it just works, right? Like it's it, it could be Mexico where you're going to be like Lucha Libre is going to work, and then they see WWE. It's wrestling, but it's higher production values, and these are dynamic people, and it, it's going to work. But I, I do think in some marketplaces, again, I bring up like France. I remember I, I did a, a an article for Bleacher Report where I broke down the whole world of all the countries that they were launching in. And I looked at the broadband index and the population and the English fluency and all this. And there was only a few places that I was like, okay, here they can go. Germany, you know, might be the exception to the rule. High broadband, not a native English speaker, but v- very good English uh, proficiency and um, some background with WWE in the sense that they've always, you know, done pretty darn well. I remember talking and to somebody who... They've had TV in, in Germany for a long time, too, haven't they? They've had TV. And I remember one, somebody once told me, you know, the only way we can find more places to tour in Europe is to go to more places in Germany. It's like Germany is the only place that had so many kind of stadiums of, like, the caliber, the size, the, the, the idea that would work really well for a WWE tour is that they've done a lot, really good stuff in the UK. And like, like Keith says, they could go there more often, but it's not like they're going to new cities all that much more. Um, the NXT brand, I do think the interesting thing that NXT brings up, and I, I'd be kind of curious of both of your thoughts on this, is that idea that NXT could be touring all those B and C level cities in the United States and Canada and Europe even that aren't necessarily big enough to get that A tour for the WWE. Uh, is that a good use for NXT, and is that something that you think they're going to be doing? I'm not sure. If we're talking about like B cities, we're talking about cities with smaller populations. I'm saying the uh, Akron, Ohio's of of uh, you know North America. Yeah, I, I guess you might you might like you think the NXT audience might be hardcore enough to drive uh, distances to see NXT. Well, I've considered it, but I, I think they're they're going to be best in, in bigger cities even even to a great proportion of the main roster WWE would do better in, in bigger cities because uh, there's more people there and you've got more, more of those hardcore fans nearby. Does that make sense? And, and Keith, what were you hearing on this last NXT tour? You know, uh, of course, what was happening with US uh, in the US markets here, we're hearing basically scalpers grabbed a whole bunch of NXT tickets and now they're getting burned because they realized uh, you know, it's not that hot of a ticket. Uh, when when NXT was was doing Europe, and and their couple dates there, were you hearing anything one way or the other? Well, it didn't really become an issue because they're a lot running much larger arenas. So, you know, I went to see NXT in Sheffield in Sheffield Arena, which uh, would be the arena in Sheffield they would normally run for WWE, um, and you know, part of the building was obviously uh, tarped off, but it was um, a large crowd, so we we were towards the upper tier because we got cheap tickets, so there's definitely a few thousand people there, which, um, you know, uh, con- contrasting that to being there for the uh, five-star wrestling Rey Mysterio um, versus AJ Styles show, where, you know, there was under a thousand people there, and that was felt very sad. For NXT, it did come off across like a hot product, so scouting wasn't an issue. I think the only the only place they ran which sold out properly would 
would have been Blackpool. Um, and I think they ran that more due to William Regal's input. So the tradition, like he, he grew up uh, wrestling in Blackpool. And it is a great, it is a great uh, place, you know, um, to attract tourists and things like that. Did the London show not sell out? The, the takeover special? Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was meaning the house shows. Okay. So yeah. we've got Keith Harris on the line. He's from Cageside Seats, uh, of course, WrestleNomics Radio on a uh, another network on the Voices of Wrestling Network. Keith, what are some of the stories you've been covering uh, recently about uh, wrestling in general over at Cageside Seats? Uh, give a, get some plugs in. So yeah, so um, uh, I I covered like the Daniel Bryan uh, retirement story. So I, I suppose I had a story that got a huge number of hits, like 100,000 hits, and I think there was more the benefit of timing, so um, about how, um, let, let me remember this, um, this would be that, um, that, well, it's about the whole situation about his contract being frozen and, you know, um, you know, him actually at one point asking for his release and WWE saying he had uh, no right to ask for his release, which was interesting, I think, if I recall correctly. But it's up on cage side seats so people can check out. Check it out. And, uh, yeah, that, that the whole contract maneuvering is, is fascinating when you really get down to it of, of the idea of can a company pay you to do nothing? <laughs> and if you don't want to do that, what makes you independent if you're somehow subservient to a contract you sign if you can't get out of it? Uh, but it, it, And you've been doing some great reporting over there. It's always uh, great. Whenever there's financial questions, especially math questions, you, uh, you're on top of that all the time. Um, Anything, Keith, uh, that you had on your mind when you originally called in that we didn't get to before I, I let you go here? Um, I think I think the the only thing uh, I was thinking was I'm probably a bit less bullish about where they'll get up to um, at um, uh, by WrestleMania. So What's your number I, for three thirty one? If I 1.45 million, maybe. Okay, and what do you think is the post WrestleMania number? How high can they get? Um, you mean, I, well, I think WrestleMania will be the peak for the year. So, so the day I, after yeah, WrestleMania, think, they'll have a call, they'll announce a number. Yeah. Will it be higher than 1.55? I don't think so. And okay. it's just because I, I just think. Yeah, most people, they've had such a large churn rate that I think, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think most people a year ago who were interested in WrestleMania uh, would have got it. And I think, I think they're, you know, looking at how the card is lining up, I don't think there'll be substantially more interest in the show than last year. So it's just, the small, probably uh, the bump up will be the small number of people who, who've now got broadband access who can 
can uh, purchase it but couldn't, let's say, a year ago. And I think, uh, you know, I, I love that, you know, people kind of put their, their numbers out here and so we have something to kind of go back to. And I think we're all in the general consensus that it's somewhere between 1.5 million peak all the way up to maybe 1.7. None of us think it's going to be at 2 million and none of us think it's going to be lower than it was in December. Um, I, I always tell the story last year I was driving, I was in Santa Clara and I had an analyst call me and he was trying to convince me on the phone that they were going to announce, I don't remember whether it was one seven five or 2 million. And he came up with all these numbers. I mean, he broke down the pay-per-view numbers. He told me about the markets they opened up in and I just wouldn't give it to him. And then I hung up the phone with him and I looked at my wife and I was just like, I feel so stupid right now. I clearly don't get this. And it was like the, the greatest day in my life when they announced the number and it was nowhere near this guy's number. And it wasn't because I, I wanted him to be wrong, but I just was like, everything I know makes no sense if this number is 2 million. And so I think we're all, you know, we're, we're quibbling over, is it going to be one seven or one six or one five? But we all think it's, it's, you know, that's kind of where it goes. And I don't think any three of us really see this magic number that pushes them over 2 million unless there's, just the steady stream of people who somehow 50,000 people a month are signing up, but they lost 405,000 people in Q4. And they gained 389, but 405,000, the second highest number they've ever had. That blows my mind that they can still be churning almost half a million people every quarter. Uh, and it's just yeah, like, but, what are people? We don't doing? know like, how, we don't know how much of that is like, you know, like people with multiple accounts, like just, yeah. just for the hell of it. I, I created a second account just to see, if it was still possible to like get the free trial again, if you just had a different email address and that, and, so I and it was, yeah, allegedly, was like Alleged for reporting going on a year, going on a year ago only, allegedly. Uh, well, I, it's I funny. Like it somebody, somebody told me they're Canadian, and all they did is they just changed their state. You know, like where it said state, they just wrote like Manitoba, and just got a U.S. account on the first day, and it never got shut off. So it's, it, it's, it's amazing what the controls are on this. Uh, Keith Harris. Uh, Keith, can you plug your Twitter and your website one more time? So my Twitter is uh, GlasgowKJH, and uh, I write for KJHTweets.com. Keith, it's a, a pleasure to have you on the show here, uh, part of the super team that we have. I'll have Dave Meltzer calling in in just a minute. No, that's a lie. But uh, uh <laughs> would, would would make everybody's day finally, right? Um, but, Keith, I appreciate yeah. having you on, and uh, we'll talk again very soon. Have a great night. Yeah, you too. That was Keith Harris calling us from Cage Side Seats. I'm still here with Brandon Howard. We've got about 26 minutes left on the show. I want to make sure those phone lines are available in case, you know, maybe somebody in East Timor wants to call in, tell us about how George Berrios has changed their life. The number is 646-668-2171. Talking here with Brandon, we're going through kind of some of the the takeaways from the uh, annual report. one one of my favorite lines in the annual report was NXT has produced current main roster stars such as Seth Rollins, Bray Wyatt, Kevin Owens, and Sasha Banks. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people kind of snickering at a little bit of that. Of course, I, I, Sasha, I, w- I would call her a pretty legitimate creation from the NXT system. Um, same uh, Seth Rollins and Kevin Owens, uh, there might be a little bit more quibbling about that one. Uh, well, they weren't going to say Ring of Honor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that, so, you know, there was a, an interesting thread over on the observer that I, that Dave weighed in on and, and kind of struck me where they were just talking about, you know, TNA 
are they stuck in the ocean? Are they moving forward? Are they moving back? Because Mike Johnson wrote a piece about how TNA was improving, right? And basically somebody else countered with, you had all these years, you could have gotten the young talent. You could have gotten the CM Punks and the Seth Rollins and the Kevin Owens and the Daniel Bryans. You could have gotten a lot of these guys back in the beginning. You had a relationship with New Japan you could have leveraged. You had a AAA relationship. You had all these things that these things you could have pulled. And instead, you spent those years investing in Jeff Jarrett. And, you know, that was the downfall of TNA and why people kind of look at it with some apathy now is because it was kind of like that was the Hogan years and the Jeff Jarrett years. And you missed that opportunity to maybe scoop up some of these people that WWE is scooping up. And so uh, what what are your thoughts on that in, in terms of like NXT? Are we going to see some more homegrown stars or are we just going to continue to see people that had already established themselves on the independent scene? I think it's going to be more people who are coming from the independents. Um, I think there'll still, still be you know, talents here and there who you didn't really know before they were signed by WWE. Um, I think there's an interesting tension, at least creatively, uh, that we see. Like, when we look at Baron Corbin, who's really getting over as a heel by sort of harnessing that resentment that, oh, he's the NFL guy who didn't, you know, do great things on the indies. Um, you know, feuding, and then he ends up feuding with uh, Apollo Crews. Uh, and then does that really great line that I, I really popped for. We said, go back to Ring of Honor. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you look at, like, the Cruiserweight series that they, they just announced. So it sounds like they're really more and more open to um, looking at independent talent and taking them seriously, which is which seems to be quite a philosophy change from... Um, do, do you listen to those uh, conference calls with Triple H before that NXT TakeOver specials? I listen to about a third of them. Um, I do actually yeah. really enjoy them. Kind of, I, I, I think, you know, obviously the ass-kissing portion of it is uh, something I could probably do a little bit less with. <laughs> and I feel the same way on the conference calls. You know, when you hear the financial analysts being like, great quarter, guys, and be like, really? Do you think it was a great quarter? Are you just saying that? Um, yeah. But, but, but my, my point was that, um, I, so first of all, I think those are just, especially the last one, just a, a great piece of political artwork by, by Paul Levesque. But but anyway, and you look you look at how NXT has changed uh, since since that first special on the network. So they've been doing conference calls for every conference calls before every special that NXT has done on the network. So the very first one, which is February 2014, uh, he, he asked asked some question and he says that you know you know the independents become less and less of an issue all the time, and uh, it's really better for us or easy for us a lot of times if we can just you know take this, this guy from scratch, take these talents from scratch, and and teach them our playbook instead of having to unteach them their, their playbook that they've been doing for eight years or whatever. And then you flash forward to the most recent one before the London call, the recent the London special, and he says, the Indies are vital. Which I thought yeah. that was really indicated, like, so he, he, he's either, and if you want to be really cynical, he's either um, playing he's to his audience or he's yeah. pandering to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the smart wrestling fans on, on the internet who don't know about the Indie guys, or he's genuinely had a, uh, a philosophical change, and I think it's, I think it's, it might be somewhere in the middle, I think it's more towards, I think he, I think he had a philosophical change, or he, um, he's hearing the, he's hearing the, the, the crowd reactions to these guys, and he's seeing the crowd that they can actually draw, and, and at least at this level, not the main roster level, but at this level, he's going to. Well, I think it's two things. I think, first of all, you do see, um, kind of that need to acknowledge the fact that some of these people had backgrounds and the way they came in and the deals that they're giving them. Um, 
there's that element of this Daniel Bryan retirement does raise the specter of, is there going to be a fear about guys being too beat up when they join the organization? Now, that's not to say guys that they try to start fresh aren't beat up too. I mean, if anybody watched Breaking Ground, you saw two or three of those guys who got cut and they didn't have a wrestling background before they joined and they were just considered too injury prone. But right. with, well, you know, Sammy Zayn. shouting like amateur wrestlers and football players. I mean, football players yeah. are, are just as prone as the issues. Who is coming to join? I mean, the guys that are coming to join the WWE that aren't beat up are like those twins uh, from Tough Enough that you know, couldn't even last a day and they quit or, you know, dancers or, or strippers or something like that. It's like, there's not a lot of people you're going to find that are caliber athletes with that kind of body, have some experience, have an interest in doing this. And they don't in some way already kind of come with some baggage, but it, it just makes me wonder with the Sami Zayn's getting hurt, the Daniel Bryan concussion issues, is there going to be a, a you know, Nigel McGuinness or someone who, you know, tried to join and then essentially uh, uh, was not able to, if I recall correctly, due to the hepatitis, uh, allegedly, things like that, where, you know, is it that fear that there's going to be guys that just can't um, hold up, and in time, is the, the culture going to change again? And we just don't know yet. We really don't. Um, I, WWE, I, I, I don't know what the alternative is, though. Like, I mean, like I said, unless you're just going to uh, scout from non-athletic backgrounds, like models or something like that. You're gonna, you're gonna yeah, and, and taking people, you're gonna be taking people who are involved in some sort of uh, contact sport, and uh, again, as you know, Richard Grace has been talking a lot about lately. It's just, it looks like it's just an inherent, you know, PTE risk or any injury risk. It's just an inherent uh, fact of of contact sports for wrestling too. And and I mean, it, it's just kind of that question of. You know, the inj- when you hear a guy who's like, I'm too injured to play in the NFL, but I'm here wrestling, it's just always kind of like, it just makes yeah. your head kind of go to the side. Same with like Brock Lesnar. It's like he's not capable of fighting, but he can be the world champion. <laughs> and, and in some but ways, that's great. Right? You do after your, your, your real athletic career, you know. After you tore your yeah, well, I mean, what you know? Again, going back to breaking ground, was it Tino or whatever who drives the uh, the car? Can you just imagine being at at, at a performance center and you're signed to a thirty thousand dollar a year contract, and a guy pulls up in a car like that, and then you're like, yeah, your match with Apollo Cruz sucks. Yes, you do get in trouble. Like he's yeah. surprised by this fact, but I'm 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 you know playing uh, inside baseball here. Um, well, some other takeaways from the uh, conference call. Uh, no, sorry, from the first call from the annual report. Uh, the, way up on employees, they had 840 employees a year ago with 761. I bring that up because every three years or so, WWE goes through big cost-cutting measures. And this happened um, Q3 of 2014. I remember this so well because that's when they also announced the global um, rollout of the WWE network was being accelerated. They were doing all the cost-cutting. They they folded the magazine division. Um and so I, I wonder if we're, you know, maybe a year away from another one of these big kind of bloodlettings from WWE as they restructure exactly what they're doing with all their plans. Um, but seeing that employee number goes up surprises me a little bit, and it doesn't. You know, some of that I know is going into search engine optimization research and network analytics and digital marketing uh, and social media positions that they never had two or three years ago. I think it's smart for the company to do that. But at the same time, you're taking on more and more weight. And when you don't produce more and more profit, even though your revenue stream's going up, you always run that risk of, you know, at what point have you become a bloated company or you become overvalued in the eyes of the analysts based on how many people are there. So it'll be really interesting to see 
kind of over the next two years here? Does, do we continue to see that em, employee number go up, or has it really reached its peak? Um, one of the uh, something that as we were talking about all our uh, W Network uh, subscriber predictions for for post WrestleMania. I think, what do you think? Do you think that WrestleMania 32 this year is going to do a better gate, or at least a, a close gate, to the gate of last year's WrestleMania, which I think is you got 12 million, 12 million, eight, 12 million, six for Levi Stadium. I think so because of two things. Number one, um, WWE showed in 2015 their ability to improve their ticket price. And so they've, they've kind of put a premium on the idea that we're going to optimize ticket pricing. Uh, and I think they're getting better at extracting more and more and more revenue from their, their events. So for instance, they're doing new services where you can kind of order merchandise on your phone. And then when you go to leave the arena, you can just pick it up. So they're figuring out better ways to get the head spend up, to get venue merchandise up and to spend more. And the second one is um, WWE gets the ticket price that was sold, regardless of whether it sells on StubHub, they already got their money, right? Because that was the paid, it's the scalper who takes the bath, not WWE. And so in some ways, I think that this scalping uh, phenomenon of this reseller market, uh, it doesn't matter whether or not the demand is there as much as it matters of whether or not the second, the the scalpers and the ticket resellers thought the demand was going to be there. So this is another example where it's kind of like stock price versus ratings. Ratings can be way down, but the stock price can be up because people believe it's going to be good. It doesn't matter whether or not the demand for wrestling is as high as it is. It just matters. Did the tickets get bought or not? And I think ultimately the tickets will get sold. And I think that will then give them a big gate. Now, do I think a year from now they can make that even WrestleMania 33 even bigger than that? Considering the fact they can't even tell me where WrestleMania 33 is yet, whether it's going to be Orlando, whether it's going to be Minneapolis, please, 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 whether it's going to be uh, <laughs> Philly, you know, it could be anything. Um, I don't think it's going to Binghamton. I uh, don't think it's going to Akron. I uh, uh, don't think it's going to Europe. <laughs> I don't think it's going to Mexico. Uh I, I do think it, it, the option. It, it, it of, sounds like Orlando wants it for both uh, 2017 and 18. Yeah, really. I I honestly just don't think WWE would be foolish enough to go somewhere twice in a row. Um, I think there's not sunk costs in such a way that make it really logistically optimal for them, except for the fact that Orlando is really close to NXT. That's the only thing that makes it you know nice in the sense that you could say, okay, we could save a little bit on travel. And maybe we could, you know, make it an NXT month instead of NXT week or something. But it's not that big of a deal. Um, I, I just think in terms of the, the whole point of this is that it's got to be an event-driven thing where you want to go travel. And I get why people say, hey, I don't want to go to Minneapolis in, in March or April. It, it might not be that cold, relatively speaking, but it is not Santa Clara, California. I can guarantee you that. I, I bribe my wife to come to WrestleMania with me when it's in Atlanta and when it's in Florida and when it's in California because it's a fun trip. Um, what I, I do wonder is uh, somebody brought up to me a question that we haven't touched on yet, and we got about 15 minutes left in the show here. If I can uh, keep you on the line right to the end. Uh, yeah, for sure. Raw is a three-hour show. Raw could be a two-hour show. If WWE could reduce Raw to two hours and they took the hit on their television rights, which you and I both know they would never do. They have no interest in showing declining revenue in the stream that subsidizes all their other projects. But let's play the thought experiment out. Raw becomes a two-hour show. Would that help with ratings, the product, with everything? Is there burnout coming from three hours? 
think so, yeah. I think I think the rating would still decline over time, but I think it would decline less. And then the alternative scenario, you give up an hour to a different show. NXT is from 7 to 8 o'clock, and then from, from 8 to 10, I'm talking central time here because I'm in Minnesota, uh, is, yeah. is uh, WWE Raw. Uh, would it make sense just to say, okay, we're going to play a switcheroo? Now, of course, people could easily say, WWE, you're not giving me the content I signed a contract for. So I, I get that, but let's just play the experiment out. Would that make sense? Would you, would you do it? In the same arena? You, you keep a three-hour show. It's just that now hour one is an NXT show. Right. And, and you air it all, and you tape it all, all in the same arena. Is that oh, oh, same arena. That's what you're asking. Um, yeah. Well, what if, I mean, it, it, what if it was just the NXT show we got now? I, maybe. I think if they, if they tape, like, at, if at 8 o'clock Eastern, they just start taping NXT, I think that would be very bad for NXT. So, so it becomes like NXT ECW special. a couple years ago. Yeah, I think most of what what makes NXT special is the atmosphere, right? And and if you, you put that uh, product in front of the general, the audience, and it doesn't get as over, almost probably doesn't get as over, might still get over, but it doesn't get as over, and it's not as enthusiastic and doesn't have that passionate crowd response that, that you get at Full Sail or at the, you know, the, the takeover special in, in other arenas that are dedicated to NXT events. Um, or doing it throwing what's on the network on USA on USA at like eight o'clock. Yeah. And and maybe. And and I think the biggest thing that people don't always get is the fact that television rights to WWE are guaranteed money and it's subsidizing these other streams and so that they go into acquisition mode in WWE network, get as many people as we can. But then they go into T V rights with the idea of basically saying, until we're proven otherwise, we don't have to sell pay per views really. So we just have to fill arenas, and we aren't necessarily losing attendance, and we got more money out of people last year. So that's really not a fact. We we even upped the number of shows we did. We broke the two million barrier again for the number of people going to our shows. So it it kind of feels like WWE is just kind of in that mid cycle. Like you know, I always say that they're not sprinting and they're not jogging. They're just you know they're at a they're at a good pace there's no sign to me that things are accelerating and that there's any reason yeah. for me to believe that WWE is going to get hot suddenly. About that attendance number. So we, we get the, I look at the trending schedules, right? And you, and you can see the last, you see 2015, 14, and 13. And the, the average attendance, North American attendance, so that's Canada and the U.S. The average attendance per show is 6,000 for each year. It just happens to be 6,000 flat. I know they're, they're like rounding off to, to the nearest I think, the, which is funny I, though, I, I'm, because I'm they give you the price. That, like, yeah, they give yeah, you the price of the ticket down to f- two digits. You know, it's fifty three twenty two this year for North American ticket versus forty eight uh, eighty six last year. So it's like that one they don't feel like they have to round, but the attendance number is magically very very rounded. And especially after looking into you know the, the ratings and, and finding out that the ratings they report are probably DVR plus seven ratings and not the live plus SD ratings that we look at uh, you know every Wednesday, Wednesday or not every Tuesday when they come out. Um, it makes me wonder if maybe they're you know uh, manipulating the numbers somehow to make sure that they're at least flat. You know, I think I think there's a certain amount of guidance in reporting numbers that you're given, and the key is it's not a gap measure, right? 
they don't have to report attendance because there's no financial against it. There's a gate, and the gate number they report, they actually give that out six, you know, all they give you the millions and the thousands number for that if you look deep enough in the report. So to them, I yeah. think they they feel like they're allowed to round any number they want. I mean, I found one year, I found that they, you know, they screwed up on what they said pay-per-view prices were, where they had taken a pay-per-view price increase, and then the next year they forgot to, like, basically change one of the numbers that they were supposed to change, and it went through. And I and I realized it was because it's a non-material thing for them to put in their report. So there's certain I, I things that they I also have noticed that um, I've looked through, like, pay-per-view buy rates and, 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 like, sourced the observer and then compared that to... Um, what, what they report in their financial reports. And there's, there's often, like, just seemingly like random discrepancies that are, that are yeah, sometimes so, higher, sometimes it's lower. And I understand, so like, a lot I, of that could be, like, could be non-current buys, like, pay-per-view buys that are made, like, yeah. about, you know, weeks later or months later or something like that. But and that's where I cut off. my teeth. I spent years, literally years, trying to reconcile the KPI thing that came out that would have the graph and that you could, you know, I could dig in with a ruler and I'd try to measure and figure out what number they reported. <laughs> then I'd look at the 8K and then I would look at the observer and the three numbers would rarely work together. And in fact, one of my my most viewed blog posts is where I try to break down all the WWE buys. And what it is, is it's a combination of A, late period buys, and B, there's a couple anomalies. There was this one, I can't remember if there was a Survivor Series or something, I think it was a Survivor Series where it changed 100,000 buys from the first number they reported to the next number. And if you go through and you actually reconcile it, what you'll even discover that makes it even goofier is sometimes when they report what last year's number is, they would then go change it. So in 2008, they would change the number they reported in 2007. And so that's when it gets really aggravating is that the fact that you can't even take them at the word, the number that they, they did. And and there's, you know, just like I talk about this Thailand thing where, you know, somebody didn't pay their bills, you always had pay-per-view people that didn't pay their bills. You always had uh, issues where, and, and God help us all understand why in this day and age we don't know how many pay-per-view buys were done the next day, why it takes, you know, estimates and, and months because it's not all mom and pop cable operators like it was 30 years ago. And yet somehow this technology and reporting still takes forever for UFC and for WWE. But, um, well, but didn't, didn't they um, after WrestleMania 30? So they did the, the conference all the next day to announce what the network number was at that point, and they, that, that's when they announced um, a million people would watch the the, the uh, yeah, uh, and we all we all said, network. wait, how did you know your your pay per view number? And then we were like, is that a million domestic, international? How are you counting this and that? And um, I'm trying to think what the actual number. In fact, I, I can just look up on my, that that post I mentioned earlier, it's on, on indeedwrestling.blogspot.com, or more easily, you can just find it on um, uh, wrestlenomics.com is the quicker way to do it. But if you type in, you know, like WrestleNomics pay-per-view numbers, uh, if we go back to that WrestleMania number, which was WrestleMania uh, of 2014, if I recall, right? Uh, WrestleMania yeah. 30, we had 420,000 domestic buys, 684,000 total buys, so 264,000 international buys. But when they mentioned more than a million people bought, that was the combination of that, you know, 667, I think was the number, 667, 287, yeah. if my number, if my memory, which I wrote in what culture about 3,000 times, uh, <laughs> serves me right, and the 400,000 domestic. 
But how do they know that? It's just like, what is going on with this industry sometimes? Is it you can just get barometers that are that good that you feel confident about it? Is it because you're doing average number of viewers per household? <laughs> you know, it gets so confusing well, sometimes. With, when it's good, um, I guess the rules change. Yeah, exactly. Um, I wanted to quickly kind of just break down something I've been posting about on Twitter. Uh, I get a lot of questions about financials. And since I don't know the next time I'm going to do a show, I just wanted to touch on what is the walk from one number to the next number to the next number? Because people ask me, how can I can compare today's financials to the financials of eight, 10 years ago? So you have your net revenues. Net revenue should make sense to everybody. That is essentially the money in the, that you, you start with, the money that goes into the bank. Then you have cost of revenues. This is how much it costs to produce that uh, revenue stream. And this is where it gets a little goofy because I always struggle with, does this, for instance, already take out all the payroll numbers for WWE uh, uh, staff? Is that sitting in a different area? And that's where I get really confused. But if you subtract net revenues minus cost of revenues, you have what they call profit contribution. And so for several years, if you go back to 2007, 2008, they reported um, cost of revenue and net revenue. Then they switch to net revenue and profit contribution, which is just the inverse number. So instead of telling you how much it costs to make the product, they told you how much we made from it. So they just gave you, you know, A minus B equals C. They gave you B one year. They gave you C the next year. Then you have profit contribution, and then we jump to what we get today, which is operating income before depreciation amortization, OBITDA. And OBITDA is kind of what they consider profit, but again, that's not the same as profit contribution because there's a walk between the two. There's profit contribution. You take out selling general and administrative expenses. You take out depreciations and amortization, and that gives you operating income. You add back in that DNA. You give your OIBDA. So uh, when people ask me, hey, can you break down the numbers? What I found is, yeah, I can tell you what the net revenues are. I can tell you approximately what the operating income was, but what I don't have a good sense for is how do I split out that SG&A, which is reported as either one big number or it's reported in its, its subcategories, which is like legal expenses, stock management fee, bad debt, not things that necessarily you can um, align to individual revenue streams as much as things that just exist. And then you have things like DNA, uh, the, uh, depreciation, amortization. And then you get into these questions of, okay, was all the depreciation on what they used to call the digital media, was that on the magazine business or was that on, on uh, some other part of, of the WWE.com business or is that on WWE shop? And so I did all this digging this week and look at it on my Twitter, see if it makes any sense to anybody, but uh, it's a real pain in the neck to try to actually get cost of revenues by revenue stream today. So essentially all we get is profit. And what I found when I looked at the profit really deeply is that Essentially, the WWE Network produces about as much money uh, on a profit OBITA basis as it did in 2007-2008. So essentially, they've caught up. What the difference is, is home entertainment used to produce a lot more profit for the company. And when that took a tumble, they really lost a lot of revenue. Um, television rights give them a ton more money than they had now. But we always go back to that same talking point. You've mentioned it. I've mentioned it. This company made almost 600 50 plus million dollars last year, and yet they're producing operating income like they did 10 years ago when they were like a $480 million company. And that says something about the fact that essentially I can sell a product for a penny and I can sell a lot of that product, but that doesn't mean I made a big profit. 
Anyways, uh, Brandon, I'm I'm going on and on here as if I don't have a co-host. I'm honored and excited to have you here. Uh, we got about a minute left on the show. Can you please tell some people about where they can hear and read and see you next? Um, everything I've written uh, has been on is on uh, voicesofwrestling.com. You can go there for tons of reviews. And uh, if you actually if you just look on my my Twitter account, if you want to read stuff that I've written, if you go to do a, a decorative drop on Twitter and look at my uh, Twitter profile. There's a link on there to all the articles that I've, I've like ever written, so that only goes back like a year and some months. But all the stuff I've written there. There's a lot of uh, WWE uh, business stuff, um, uh, an argument for uh, Daniel Bryan's Hall of Fame candidacy, and uh, I, I did a, a very long uh, year-end analysis of a number of metrics, uh, everything from TV ratings, to pay-per-view buys, to network subscription numbers, so we got about 20 seconds left, but you're going to the pay-per-view <laughs> yeah. tomorrow. Are you going to get a? Are we going to see a review of that? Uh, who knows? We'll, we'll see what happens. Okay. No well, Brent, <laughs> Brent and Howard, you are an upstate New York chum. You are a a renowned WrestleNomics a correspondent. You are a great writer, and we appreciate having you here on the show. Of course, this is always available here at Voices of Wrestling. And uh, over here at Blog Talk Radio, thank you, everybody. This is Mookie Ghana signing off, saying good night. Good night. There is a new shining star with great interviews, analysis, music, and and me, Matt Coon, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.